love to hand you a Bible? And, and uh, yes, he would. So just raise your hand and Bejo would give you a big John Bejo. He's going to Cancun soon, John Bejo is. Congratulations, John. He was just bragging about it on the deck earlier, so. Hey, um, a couple things. I'm, I'm uh, you know, each week I'm, I'm trying to share things that, uh, that are exciting and, 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 and just great. And um, we continually just, man, there's just stuff that's happening that's good. And even though there are people out there who want to tell you that there isn't, there is stuff that's happening, and, and it's great. One of the things, uh, last week, this is really cool, last week I, um, uh, I kind of shared a little bit out of the passage on generosity and, and giving, and uh, the last three months, uh, a big part of our team, uh, Brad and Pam Franklin, have been on sabbatical. So our pastors get a sabbatical every uh, seven years or so for, for a good chunk of time, and it was Brad. Brad's turn to do that and um, well overdue. And so Brad and Pam are finally back after three months. So that's Brad in the back there. You can say hi to him. Brad handles like all of uh, really the, the crunching of numbers and facility stuff and all the behind the scenes things that, that I, I don't want to do that I'm not gifted at doing that he is gifted at. And so during three, those three months, um, I really haven't had a solid um, financial report because Brad is the one who usually provides those. We switched to a new online program. There's all kinds of other reasons for that, but we've been monitoring while he was gone, making sure that we don't, uh, you know, function out of our means uh, financially and all of that. We've still been able to obviously do some incredible ministry, but I haven't seen where we're at financially. Um, and so during this uh, whole pandemic and everything that's been going on, uh, it is a, a huge blessing for me to say uh, we have had our largest giving year to date ever in the history of the church. So, um, and the thing that's really cool about that is, you know, early on when we were discussing uh, as a leadership, as your elders, you know, how we're going to handle things financially, one of the things that was really being pushed out there uh, quite heavily was for churches to take PPP loans. Uh, and so they were saying, hey, listen, if you're not, if you're going to lose some money, there's this government funding for you and it's help and there's no strings attached. And initially, I thought, you know, we needed to go after this. And then through the wisdom of our other elders, specifically Brad Franklin being one of them, uh, we, we, we just realized, you know, this would not be a good decision for us to take a PPP loan. Uh, and so we did not take a PPP loan. So we've had our best year ever, no loan from the government. Uh, and now we're seeing that churches that are open like ours that took PPP loans, they're now being say, say hey, wait a minute, you can't be open. You took money from the government. Uh, and so it's, it's uh, by God's grace... Um, we don't have to even worry about what they say. So, um, good. <clears throat> and if, if, uh, if you're online, you're, you're tuning in, or if you're here, uh, you know, we don't talk about, we really don't talk about finances all that much. We have offering boxes in the back. We don't pass the plate. You can give online, uh, all of those things, bill pay and all that stuff. And I just want to say, man, just thank you for being incredibly generous because, we do have dreams as a church, and we do have mission that we want to accomplish, and your generosity helps us to accomplish those things. And so uh, just incredibly blessed uh, by you guys. And in fact, I, I found out last week we're kind of calculating all of our year stuff, our year-end stuff, and, and, and what we've done and where we're at. And Joe Casey, who runs our nursery uh, downstairs now and also runs our children's church program, uh, I told you a few weeks ago we had just under 100 kids between both. Uh, of those programs, and he let me know this week, because I'm not over there all the time, and I don't always ask these questions uh, with the staff all the time, but I asked him this week, 
how many volunteers are on our roster for uh, serving next door? And he let me know we have over 50 volunteers in our children's program just on Sundays alone. That doesn't include what's happening at Awana. That doesn't include the 20-plus leaders uh, that help every Wednesday night with our junior high and our senior high program. Uh, statistically, they say most churches uh, that their people, around 10% of them serve. We are so much higher than that. Uh, and so, man, God's good. And uh, you're responding to him. And so I just want to give, give you uh, a huge thank you from my heart. And you can all just do this to yourself. You can just reach back there. No? You don't want to do that? Okay. Um, a couple other things, announcements, uh, uh, announcement-wise to be aware of. Uh, one is um, we have a, uh, a six Bible studies that are we call them MAGS groups, which stands for Men's Accountability Groups. There's six of them that meet through the week. One of them actually meets at uh, uh, Drink Coffee Do Stuff, which is opening up this week uh, downtown. Another one meets at Wagon Train. Uh, and then some meet in some other homes. But check that out. Make sure you get plugged into that. Uh, and there's some more information on the website. But these are really good groups for, for you to get plugged in. As I said, one meets at uh, Wagon Train. A whole other praise that's really cool is because uh, our people, you know, that's you and our church, um, we're getting a name in the community for supporting community businesses because we're not living in fear. We're living in faith. And so I'll give you an example of that. Um, one is Wagon Train. The, We've had a ton of Bible studies growing at Wagon Train, so there's all these Christians who are making sure Wagon Train stays open, which is really cool. And then um, there's another, uh, another business in town. I don't want to mention who they are uh, because I haven't asked for permission for, the, for them to do so, but they're open, and they're open because we have, they have uh, this particular, it's a class, but this particular class has over 20 uh, kids from our church alone who are attending the class, and she was telling me this week, she's, she says, I'm actually going to have to open up more classes because I have so many kids and, and, and so many of them are from your church. And so she's just really, really uh, excited to, um, I, I don't even know if she's a Christian or not, but she's, she likes me right now, which is great. And she likes you. Uh, so that's, that's really cool. So man, I just, those kind of things are worth celebrating, aren't they? Uh, they're worth talking about. And, and again, it's just because God's good. He gets credit. He gets glory. Jesus is faithful to those who's faithful to him. And he's even, he's even, believe it or not, he's faithful when we're not faithful. Uh, and so that's good news. Um, so MAGS groups are open up. Uh, make sure you check those out. And then, um, uh, Dan, if you'll switch to the, the slide. Uh, as I mentioned, um, you know, it's not good for the church to be in, the bed, in bed with the government, but God does have a view of government. And Tim Rupert uh, is coordinating a class for us as a church to learn a little bit more about God's view uh, on, on government and, and all of that. And so he's going to uh, come up and share. So please welcome Tim. He's an incredible public speaker. Hey, love. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. And Jesse's right. I definitely, this is my, my realm that I love to be in, in front of people. <laughs> um, I did, this guy, uh, Mike Winther, is the president of an organization called Institute for Principal Studies. And um, he's spoken at Sierra Bible in the past. It's been probably eight or ten years ago. But um, he teaches um, a bunch of different classes, but most of them are in relation between the church and families and government. And um, I just had one of his classes at my house um, this last fall, just a video class, and there was about 10 to 15 people. And um, it was awesome, just especially in this time, in this era, where um, churches have to make decisions and people have to make decisions on how to deal with governments. 
And um, he does a great job of showing that there's, there is no separation between church and state, that there is um, a God-ordained family um, government, church government, and civil government. And all three of those, just like um, the, just as, you know, God is in three, so the church is also, and, and ourselves as Christians are part of three elements in this world. And so um, he's going to come up and speak on a Friday night, Saturday, the first weekend in March. Um, so it's like the 5th and 6th. And then um, it's going to be catered, and then also child care will be provided for both days and um, if you want, there's a sign up in the back. I'll be in the back. Cool. Thank you, Tim. <clears throat> Can you go back to that real quick, uh, Dan? Just because I want to, I just want to share what what Tim mentioned. That there are these three institutions that exist, and as Tim shared biblically, uh, they're they're instituted by God. So, family is one of those institutions. That's actually the smallest form of government, the home. Uh, and then the church, and then civil, which is what we're a part of. And God does have something to say about all that. And I would say, even for those of you maybe who are online, or those who are wondering um, how we would, how or why we would come to a conclu- the conclusion to be open in spite of uh, of the government restrictions, a class like this may answer many of your questions in that regard. Okay, um, I actually posted. Uh, uh, on my social media thing the other day, just trying to make a point that out of Timothy, Paul encourages Timothy. That's the book that we've been in for several months. He says, he says literally to Timothy, make sure that you devote yourself to the public reading and exhortation of the word, uh, of, of God's word. And the word that's used in there is public. You know what public is? You're in public right now, okay? Um, it's, it's in the assembly. And so, uh, again, as we continue to reiterate, just trying to explain uh, to you and our people and those who disagree with us uh, and those who do agree with us, this is why we're in the place that we are at, because we believe firmly, uh, number one, primarily, that God has called us as a people to not forsake the gathering of the saints uh, or forsake the preaching of God's word in community and faith. And then number two, uh, we also believe that written within our own uh, government institution that we have the freedom uh, to be able to do so. The Supreme, the Supreme Court literally just said so this week in California, uh, which is worthy as well, but we don't need the permission from the government because we have permission from God himself. Right. <clears throat> um, you ready for the word? Me too. I'm ready for the word. Uh, if you would, as I said, First Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. We're going to close the book this morning. This is going to be the conclusion. In fact, the, the title of the message this morning is a final charge. Some of what I'm going to share is a little bit of review. Some of it will be new material. But Paul, again, he's been encouraging young Timothy uh, to, to pastor his church, to pastor the flock that is amongst him, that he would care for his people, that he would love the church, that he would serve the church, uh, that he would lead the church, even in all of its imperfections, because the church is filled with imperfect people, yeah? Uh, In fact, it has been said before by previous pastors, if you find a perfect church, leave because you'll ruin it. Uh, There's no such thing as a perfect church. Paul is dealing with this with Timothy. There's false teachers. There's things that are happening inside marriages that aren't completely correct. Uh, There are, uh, are issues with the widows and orphans of the church There are people who are trying to be leaders that have no business being leaders, and so Paul encourages Timothy 
uh, to continue to press in and lead this church through the Word of God. What I like about the book, uh, it, which is really similar to what we do every single Sunday, the book starts out, Timothy in chapter 1, if you remember, it actually starts out with what's called a doxology, and the book uh, here in chapter 6, which we read, uh, will read, ends in doxology. Doxology is just a, a million-dollar word for praise and worship and adoration, telling something to God that God is. So when you say, we believe that God is the King of Kings, He is beautiful, He is worthy of worship, that is doxology. Singing is doxology. We start our services with a doxology, and we end with a doxology and singing praise to the Lord in song. And so this morning, let's conclude this wonderful book that I think has really uh, given us some backbone uh, in this season. But would you stand with me this morning as we read and honor God's uh, scripture from chapter 6, verse 11? But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What things? All the stuff he talked about in uh, the previous chapters, sin and unrighteousness and and a love for materialism, but rather pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who, uh, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained, and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here comes the doxology, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides for us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions that is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace with you. Lord, as we close, mold us, shape us, make us courageous in your image. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. You may be seated. Um, so Timothy says in this particular passage, O man of God. This is an identity that is given to Timothy. We talk about that word, O man of God, or that title, O man of God. It's important to know a little bit of its history. First of all, the history of that word is used multiple times in the New Testament for even the most imperfect of men, David, Moses, and many others, many of the prophets, many of the kings. This is a title that has been given to men who have led the way, led the charge for God, that they're men of God, not because they're perfect, not because they've done a perfect job, but because they've tried their best to be faithful to the Lord. On the New Testament, this language, man of God, is literally only used for Timothy. So when Paul uses this word for Timothy, he's really elevating this young, youthful pastor to, uh, to the heights of, of David and Moses and others. He's, he's letting us know that Timothy's worthy of being uh, listened to and obeyed. 
And even though it's only listed for Timothy, we know that Scripture extends this title of men of God or children of God or people of God to everyone in the church. This is ultimately Paul's aim in the letter is to mold us and to shape us into the identity that God has given us in the church, that we would be people of God, that we would be known as people of God. He doesn't say that Timothy is going to be a man's man. He doesn't say that Timothy is going to be a man of money. He says, no, Timothy, you're a man of God. Ultimately, that's the question that we hopefully can answer this morning and that we can answer for ourselves. Are you a person of God? Are you known as somebody that pursues God? And we're going to talk about this morning four different aspects of the man of God. I'll give them to you in advance. I won't answer all of them, but I'll give them to you in advance because so many pastors before me uh, have actually said there's four F's in here that we need to follow as men of God. Now, they're not to be mistaken with the three F's if you played football, which is family, faith, and football. Have you ever heard that before? Those are the three F's of football. It's not the three F's of football, the three F's of the man of God. The man of God flees from, that's number one. Number two, the man of God follows after, that's number two. Number three, the man of God fights for, and number four, the man of God is faithful to. And I'll give you the rest as we tease these out. So let's ask the question. How many of you like running? Okay. You're not normal. I'm just going to tell you right now. You're not normal. Um, man, I, running is hard. So there was a period of time, you know, I've been on this journey I've shared with you since COVID and trying to deal with my own health and weight loss and all of that. And, and I'm down 10 pounds, by the way. Don't clap for me. Don't clap for me. I've got, I've got so many. No, stop, stop. No, stop. No, stop. No, stop. No, okay. <laughs> I've got, I've got a long way to go, okay? Um, but man, it, it's hard work. And, and, and I was thinking about this as I was studying how when my, when my uh, stepfather passed away, it was a really hard time for my wife and I and my kids, really difficult. And I put on a lot of weight at that time too. So obviously there's a correlation with how I handle stress and, and weight gain. And, um, and during that time, I got, I got pretty big. But then all of a sudden, uh, somebody, or maybe I bought it for myself, I got a Fitbit. And I'm wearing this Fitbit every single day, and so I start looking and, and start seeing that, that they recommend, how many of you know how many steps you're supposed to take a day? 10,000 steps. If you said six, that's your problem. You got to up it to two. Um, just 10,000 a day is what you're supposed to, to be doing. So I started out real, you know, real slow, 10,000 steps. I'd get up during, uh, during the office hours, and I'd walk, and then, and then all of a sudden, that turned into a three-year journey where where by the end of the three-year journey, I was actually, literally, I know this is going to be shocking for some of you to believe, but I was running five miles almost every single day. And I got down to my sophomore in high school weight, 184 pounds, I think, is what I was, which was incredible. A lot of work, uh, a lot of sweating, uh, a lot of sacrifice. uh, But man, I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. And the the main reason I hated it is my entire life as as an athlete uh, has been explosive. It's been all explosive work. I, that I trained for football, trained for track, and football, uh, and I don't know if you know this or not, but there's, there's a big game on today for football. If you didn't know, there is. It's called the Super Bowl. It's not a salad. It's a game. And during football, all of my training, and if, you, if you've played football at all long enough, you'll, you'll realize that football is, is built to be played for five yards. I know it takes 10 yards to get a first down, but that's not really what you're training for. It's five. So all of my life, I have trained for five yards, five yards. 
Because I, I played running back. If I got five yards every carry, I was doing great. And so explosion, explosion, explosion. Not endurance, not long, just fast and explosive work, getting those quick twitch muscles going. That's one of the reasons why I hate long distance. I'm just not built for it. And so when we look at this and, and, and we think about the idea of running and, and exercise, Paul is really telling Timothy, just so you know, as he's giving this final charge, Timothy, uh, the, the, the Christian faith that you practice is not a sprint. It's long distance. And, and he's telling Timothy that you're going to have to learn how to run, and you're going to have to learn how to run consistently over a long period of time. Our faith is not an explosive faith in the sense of, of it's explosive in that God's inside of us, but, but it's not like football. I mean, today when you watch the game, if you watch the game today, uh, I can't remember what the minutes are. It's somewhere between, I think it's 11 minutes. Uh, it might be as high as 20, but it's somewhere between 11 and 20 minutes. In the game of football, it is said that there is literally only 11, between 11 and 20 minutes of actual play. Okay? What that means is there's a lot of time coming up to the line, a lot of time in the huddle, a lot of timeouts. And if you've ever had the privilege to go to a live NFL football game, they do a thing, and they'll be doing it during the Super Bowl, uh, TV timeouts. So by the time, first of all, you're going to, if you, and I will, I'll be honest, I'm going to watch the game today, it's going to be about a three-hour process. Normally, on a Sunday, if you watch a football game, it's three hours. If you watch the Super Bowl, it's going to be more like three and a half to four hours because we have to spend a little extra time for this little thing they call the halftime show, right? So, so when you watch this, the four hours, there's only 11 minutes of actual something happening. And some of you, some of you are going to watch the game today just to watch the commercials, and that's weird, but okay. So what, what, all of that to say, the Christian faith is not like football. You don't take timeouts and you don't sit on the bench, and you don't stand around. You're to be active in the process of Christianity at all times. Okay, this is one of those things that's really interesting. When someone, someone asks me as a pastor, and they say to me, or ask the question as a pastor, well, well what are your hours? When do you work? <laughs> all the time, right? I'm a Christian, not because I get paid for it. What's that? Same as the mom. Let's give those moms credits. Let's not forget the mothers. You're better than pastors, okay? Um, so Paul says to Timothy, this is number one, Paul says to Timothy, if you're going to be a man of God, you have to flee certain things. He says it, flee it. Flee these things. In the previous chapter, it was uh, regard, regarding material stuff in the world, really. Another way to say it that Paul's basically telling Timothy by way of Timothy and by way of the church is that the church has to know how to have language about sin and how to deal with sin. And so the first thing Paul tells Timothy in regards to sin is there's a time to run. There's a time where you have to learn to just get away from that thing that is going to make you sin. In fact, a couple pieces of scripture for us this morning tell us to flee youthful passions. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 tells us to flee idolatry, to run from these things, to run from sin, to run from youthful passions, to run from idolatry. Take note, just because of the season that we're in, of what 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says. 
No temptation has, over, has ever overtaken you that, number one, is not common to man, and number two, that he never tempts you beyond your ability, but always provides a way of escape. So what does this mean? First of all, it doesn't mean this. People have used in the church this verse, when you go through hardships, uh, people have used this verse to say, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not what it's saying. God indeed will give you things that you cannot handle because those are the ways that we lean into God in faith, okay? God puts us in circumstances that we can't deal with, that we don't know how to deal with, so we can get outside of our humanistic selves and lean into Jesus, okay? What he means by this in 1 Corinthians, and this is the context that matters, is in regards to sin itself. So first of all, he says of, of sin, the things you need to flee from, just so you know, uh, you've, you, nothing has overtaken you that's not common to man. So that sin that you're dealing with, that's not common. It's, it's not uncommon, I'm sorry. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? I've counseled people who've literally told me, no one's ever had to deal with this before. Yes, they have. Okay? The same sins that Adam and Eve struggled with are the same sins you and I struggle with today. We have gotten more creative in how we sin, but the heart of the sin, the issue of the sin, the origin of the sin, all the same, okay? So he says, take heart, you're all the same. <laughs> all of you have sin, all of you have struggled with sin to some degree, but God always gives a way of escape to that sin. I'm sure if you, you can think of certain things that are your particular sins that you need to run from, that when you're faced with them, if you really think about them, you can find in the history of those struggles where God has given you an opportunity to say no. Am I right? You can. And then you look back and you go, that was the door of escape, but I didn't, I didn't take it. So he says, okay, Timothy, you gotta, you gotta know, you gotta run from sin. So let me ask you a question this morning in regards to sin. What is it that you need to run from? What is it in your life that God may be showing you in this moment that you need to turn away from. This is the process the Bible calls repentance. That, that repentance uh, for us as Christians is, is the thing. If you're wondering, if you're new to the faith, if you're new to Christianity, repentance is that thing you do initially when you come into a relationship with Jesus. It's the very first thing you do. You acknowledge your guilt, you acknowledge your need, and then you turn away from your guilt and, and you turn to the thing that you need, which is Jesus, and you choose the better life. Some of you know I've been quoting Luther a lot lately. I've been li I'm actually listening to a, a book on Luther from a, a guy by, by the name of Metaxas. And it's just reminded again this week how, how when Luther nailed the Reformation on the door of the Catholic Church, right? Luther wanted to reform and change the Catholic Church. And he had 95 points, 95 things on that list. He said, listen, we've got to work on these things. Number one, number two, number three, number four. Number one. Number one on Luther's list is that the life of a believer would be willed to be a life of repentance and that he would act upon that repentance continually. So what that means is at faith, at the origin of being birthed again anew in Jesus Christ, we repent of our sins and we become a new creation. And now because we're a new creation, we practice the lifelong practice of recognizing the sins that are in our life, confessing those sins in our life to God, and then we get to step into his grace and back to the things that are right with God. Amen? Because here's something I deal with on occasion with people when I'm counseling with them. They, they, they'll feel like if, 
If I'm constantly re- repenting and I'm constantly finding out about my sin, it, it beats me up. It makes me feel bad about myself. It makes me feel like I, I'm a nobody and that I'm not good enough. And here's the thing. When you think that way, it's because you've taken the wrong view of your salvation and the wrong view of repentance. Because the right view of repentance is not just an acknowledgement of guilt that you would feel shame-filled. It's an invitation to step back into the grace of God. So every time you acknowledge and you say, I'm a sinner, the door opens up for you to experience the grace of God even though you're a sinner. That even though, even though I wrestle against my flesh and my blood and, and the things that are in me that, that, that aren't, aren't what I want them to be there, and Paul shares that, man, well, what man am I? I? I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I know I should do. That's sin. That's the definition of sin. Who will save me from this, he says. Ah, but for Christ Jesus. Right? It's an invitation back into his arms. Genesis chapter 39, we're told of a story of Joseph. You remember Joseph? What a faithful man, a man of God. And, and a woman who's married by the name of Potiphar finds Joseph attractive, and, and she pursues him, and she says to him, Joseph, my husband is gone. Come and lie with me. Joseph's absolutely not. He goes to take off. Potiphar grabs his clothing, and what happens to his clothing? It gets torn off. And he runs away from that sin. Hey, dudes, you want to get rid of lust? Run from it. Don't try to fight it. See, this isn't the, the fighting part yet. We're not there. Okay? He, and notice, he, he's telling us, he's not saying, manage your sin. No, mortify your sin. In fact, in this letter, Paul has told Timothy, work hard for the glory of God. Flee laziness. He tells Timothy, don't be a heretic. Flee false teaching and myths. He tells Timothy, don't desire riches. Flee the love of money and don't be addicted to consumerism. Flee these things. Flee these things. Run from these things. And the reason is the same reason that if Mike Tyson walks in this room and Mike Tyson steps up to here and he says, I want to box you. I don't go, well, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. Let's go, let's go do this. That's not what I do. I'm going to run. I'm going to run. I was watching some MMA fights with my boys because they're doing some jiu-jitsu, and, and so it's an opportunity for them to, to, to see some moves and learn some moves, and so we're watching it. And, and my, my son says to me, Dad, would you go in there? And I go, no. And he says, why? Because I'm not trained to be in that ring. He would ruin me. And my son goes, yeah, your biceps probably would need to be here instead of here. I'm getting all kinds of positive affirmation from my children at this season. So what is it in this first F, flee, that you need to flee from? Where is the work that you need to put in to allow God to expose sin in your life as an invitation to step into God's grace? But here's the thing. Here's what inevitably happens. Uh, for those of us who've maybe been in church just for a little while, we, we, it, and even some of us who've been in the church longer, we get into this place where we are managing sin. We're, we're really, again, like management is not what we need. We need heart transformation. And some of us might even stop doing a particular sin and start feeling righteous about not doing that particular sin any longer. But just because you stop sinning doesn't make you a Christian. Did you know that? 
But first of all, it's impossible to stop sinning. You're a human being. You're, you're imperfect. You're frail. That, that's what we admit. That's how we come to salvation. I need someone to save me outside of myself. But then we get into this place where we start managing sin, and what happens when we manage sin instead of heart transformation is all, all we do is trade one, one sin for another sin. Right? I mean, we, there, I know people who've given up who've literally given up energy drinks, but man, they sure know how to drink coffee. I've known individuals who've stopped smoking only to exchange it for nicotine gum. John Calvin, all the way back in the Reformation, was the one who said it best. He said, our hearts are idol factories. We just know how to keep churning these false gods out. See, without heart transformation, we just exchange one addiction for another addiction, and that's not what we're called to do, manage our sin. No, we're called to completely repent, to flee from, but then we're called, this is number two, to follow after. You see this on our wall behind me. You see this in our bulletins. You see this on our website that we believe as a church that we primarily are supposed to follow after Jesus Christ, which means if we're to follow after, if we're to pursue God, that God has goals for our life. Did you know God has a goal for you? Probably has many goals. In fact, the Bible literally says that he has predestined beforehand good works for us to do. There are good things that, that when you were born, uh, and, and I didn't mention this earlier, but um, Caleb, our youth pastor, and Missy, his wife, had their fourth healthy baby yesterday, which is great. We just keep having babies around here. And... Um, and it, 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 what's beautiful, and, and at some point I'll have the opportunity to hold this beautiful little girl as I've been able to hold all my other kids, and to just see that there is potential in that child to follow after Jesus, and that Jesus has predestined specific works for that child to accomplish and to take part in. I mean, some of you know my story. I was told as a young kid, all the way from my grandparents, that I was going to be a pastor. There's something inside my grandmother. She knew this is what Jesse's going to do. And I fought it for a long time. But it's amazing to think as, as God brought me into this world that, that he, sa- he, he, he had planned beforehand to save me, but not only to save me, but to bring me in to the family of God and to participate in so many of the miracles that we're experiencing in this last year. So we pursue after certain things. What are those things that Paul tells Timothy? He tells him to run after righteousness. The term that's used in this particular passage, as well as the one before it, is to pursue godliness, that you'd be known as a godly person, that you'd be known as someone who does the right things. Ephesians chapter 5 says, be imitators of God. Other places in the Bible literally tell us to imitate leaders as they imitate Christ. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, pay careful attention to yourself. He says, pay attention to the things that are right. That means we have to take time in pursuing Jesus as we're running from sin. We're doing some contemplating about what is it that God wants to teach me? What is it that God wants to mold and form in my life? How does he desire me to change? You gotta pay attention. You know, our whole culture right now is doing everything it can to get you not to pay attention, to get you to not think, to not go deeper. 
But to stay surface level, I'll, I'll tell you, I was listening to um, a radio station the other day, and they said, they were talking about how, uh, how the media manipulates things. You know the mini- they do that, right? Might, this might be new news to you. But. There's an agenda. And they were saying the, uh, uh, a survey company, but, you know, there's, again, there's a Super Bowl this, this Sunday, and there's an organization, I can't remember the name of it, but there's an organization that's been doing surveys on the Super Bowl, I think since the year 2001, something like that. Might be a little later. Either way, they've got, I think, at least 10 to 15 years of data on Super Bowl attendance and things like that. And so they, they said, this was, this was the news report on the survey that just went out. Due, due to COVID-19, only 20% of Americans plan on attending or, or hosting a Super Bowl party. Due to COVID-19, only 20% of Americans will be at a party. Okay. But if you go into the survey, you go into the rest of the article, you'll find out that the next highest percentage of attendance ever is 17%. You pay attention. Due to COVID-19, more people will be partying at the Super Bowl than ever before. Hey, it's just science, y'all. You've got to pay attention to what is happening in your life and to run away from the junk that is filled with lies. As, as, just as Paul tells Timothy here, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, and it's in parentheses, knowledge, right? Don't watch TMZ and don't waste your time watching mainstream news media because it is irreverent babble that is not based in the truth of God. And so we pursue and we follow after godliness and righteousness, and we should be known by those things. He also tells Timothy, may you pursue faith, putting your trust in God and taking faith-filled risks. We're part of an organization called the Christian Missionary Alliance. We partner with them uh, because they help us reach the entire world for the gospel because we can do more together than by ourselves. So one of the reasons we partner with them is to help get funds and resources to church planting nationally, as well as church planting and missionary work across the world. One of the core values that they have on their website, if you look them up, is that we would be people that take faith-filled risks. That's the core value, to take faith-filled risks. You being here is a faith-filled risk. You know, we know all the rest of the science. We know that the, the disease is real. We know that we can get sick. But we've decided that the risk is worth taking because of what it does for our faith. Hebrews tells us in chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Faith is how we're to live our lives. So the question has to be asked, what would our world look like and what would our church look like if we were known for running from sin and we were known for running to God? That's what I want our community to know about us. That's what I want to be 
known for. In addition to that, Paul says you need to be loving, kind, and gracious, that you need to be steadfast, which is to have endurance, perseverance, and long-suffering. I'd have gone longer, but I don't run anymore. That we are to keep pressing in and being faithful. Galatians tells us we'll reap if we don't give up. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 that, that if we endure, we'll be saved. This is what we call the perseverance of the saints, that we persevere, that we overcome because God sees that we'll be overcome. Jesus himself said, take heart for I have overcome the world. So this means this perseverance we practice because Jesus has already defeated the things of evil. And then he tells Timothy, you're to be a man who's known by your gentleness. You're not angry, but you're tender. So what is it that we are to run from? What is it that we are to run to? That's the fleeing from sin and the following after Christ. But then Paul tells Timothy in verse 12, if we read it again, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Now the encouragement to Timothy is that he would fight, that there is a time to fight. There is a time to stand up. There is a time to be combative. But Ephesians tells us in regards to this fighting that we're not fighting people. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, it says. We wrestle against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right, so, so here's what we need to understand about this particular verse. Uh, you don't fight people in the church. If you get in an argument with your spouse, you're not actually fighting your spouse. If you're getting in weird arguments with your children, you're really not arguing with your children. You're not fighting against your children. The real fight is against the devil himself in the cosmic world that undermines everything in our culture. Right, let, let, me, let me just share with you and, and, and open up our minds to this reality that, that when we sit down for four hours, the 20% of us that are going to be throwing Super Bowl parties, when we're sitting down for those four hours watching that game and enjoying the halftime show, which is I, I know some of you only watch for the halftime show. I don't even know who's doing the halftime show. But when you do that and you're paying attention to what's being sold in those commercials, you have to understand that everything about even what happens on Super Bowl Sunday, Satan's underneath it trying to tell you something. Trying to teach you something that's not true about yourself. Trying to tell you something about culture that's not really real. He's trying to buy you into lies. You know what the culture loves to push? The drug of the culture, of the American culture in particular. The drug that you are just being fed every day is to be afraid. Be scared. You know what? And there's nothing else that you should fear more than losing your life. You know in Revelations when it talks about the saints, and if this is the last days, praise God for it. If he's coming, praise God for it. But one of the things that happens in Revelations in the book says that they overcame the dragon, the serpent, Satan, with the word of their testimony. Their testimony being the story of God in their lives, how he's overcome, how God's overcome sin in their lives and saved them by the blood of the lamb. Does anyone know what the third one is? That they didn't love their life to the death. 
the, 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 the saints in the end days didn't love this life in the world as something they felt like they had to squeeze and keep. But they were willing to die for whatever purpose because God would be glorified and we don't live for this life, but we live for eternity. And what we do here is to encourage people to look forward to what is ahead. Amen? Puritan John Flavel says, Brethren, it's easier to declaim against a thousand sins of others than to mortify one ourselves. It's easy for us to focus on other people. It's easy for us to focus on other things. But as we fight, we fight the devil, we fight the flesh, and we fight the system of the world. Those are the three things that we wrestle with. And there's a time in our life where we do the fighting uh, of what Flavel is mentioning, which is the mortification of sin. John Owen, uh, who wrote a great book called Mortification of Sin, Puritan, uh, great book if you haven't read it, uh, but that we would be willing to murder our sins. In fact, John Owen said it like this. He said, do you mortify? This is just language for fighting sin, murdering your sin, getting rid of it. Do you make it, he says, your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. In John Owen's book, he basically says that sin is always craving, always desiring, always killing, and so we should always be doing the righteous work of fighting against that sin. That the church should be known for fighting against it. A few things that the, the Bible tells us to do, fight for life until he comes. Fight against lethargy and laziness. Fight for your marriage. Fight for purity. Fight against unbelief. Fight against materialism. And Paul takes time in the letter to just reiterate again in chapter 6. He did it earlier, and then he says it again. He gives more encouragement to the rich. And some of us who aren't rich, we're like, yeah, tell the rich. Tell the rich what they're supposed to do. But remember, I told you last week that, that if you've got extra change in your pocket, you're rich. We're richer than 90-plus percent of the world. We're richer than 90% of the people who've ever lived on the planet. I mean, some of us have carpet in our houses. I mean, I've done missionary work to Mexico and Papua New Guinea. Some people have dirt. That's their, that's their floor. We're all rich. And so what's that commandment to the rich? He says, number one, don't be haughty. Don't be prideful. Don't put your hope in riches uh, that, that, that can fade because they are. They're going to destro- be destroyed. But rather, he says, be rich in good works. I love it. You want to know why I love it? I love that statement to the rich. Be, be rich in good works. If you're wealthy, be rich in good works. You want to know why? I've done this long enough to know that there are people who have enough money to write a check to feel like that's all they need to do for the kingdom of God is just write checks. And it's just, I'm just going to write a check. But that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, Timothy, the rich in your church, their job's just to, just to put it in the coffer. No, no, no. He says, they need to be willing to be humble enough to roll up their sleeves and serve. Right? You, you, know, you know how if you're wealthy and you really understand the gospel, you want to be in children's church. You want to clean up outside. And I've known guys who've got more money than I'll ever have in my entire life, and they are known for being service-oriented men because they know the gospel. But then he also says to the rich as the encouragement, Not only should you be known for your good works, but you are to share, he says in the text, and to be generous with all. 
Share your stuff. Amen? Uh, I, I have this quote here this morning. It says, when the, Lord, when the Lord gives you stuff, you have a tendency to say, mine. My children do, that's for sure. But what Jesus is saying is, no, theirs. You are a distributor, not a consumer. He says he puts things in our hands so that we can give them away. And when we do, he puts more things in our hands. And if we close our hands, he'll give that to someone else. If you're not a person that's willing to share, then you've missed out on true life. Because Jesus is all about sharing, isn't he? So, Paul gives these instructions to Timothy. Run from your sin. Run to the things of God. Flee your sin. Follow Jesus. Fight for certain things. And the last one, be faithful. What does Paul tell Timothy to be faithful to? Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. What is this deposit? Timothy, you've got to guard this thing that's been planted in you. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Timothy, you've got to be faithful to the gospel. You've got to be faithful to the word of God. And you've got to be faithful to the people of God, faithful to the church. Don't waste your time with with empty babble. Don't waste your time with silly myths, Timothy. Don't waste your time doing those things, but spend, spend time being entrusted with the things that I've given you. Timothy, you know what you've been given? You've been given the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be faithful to that. Timothy, you've been given the word of God. Be faithful to that. Timothy, you've been given a church to take care of. Be faithful to that. My friends, if we're going to be faithful as a church, as we close out the book of Timothy, we must be encouraged to be, to be just strong in our faith, consistent in our faith, and that we don't allow anything, especially anything in culture, to, de- to, ever, to ever deter us from the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot be persuaded by the public opinion. We cannot be persuaded by politics. We cannot be persuaded what people may think of us. We cannot be persuaded by people whether they give or they don't give. We must be persuaded by Jesus Christ alone. That is true of 2020. That will be true of 2021. It will be true of 2022. If the faith is going to continue to endure, and I believe it will. In fact, you know what's so awesome about being a Christian in this day and age? It is really, really clear right now who is and who isn't. It has never been more stark. I mean, the contrast is just clear as day, isn't it? I mean, that's good news for me (laughs) as a preacher because now I know who I'm dealing with. I I literally know what I'm dealing with now. I don't have a bunch of pretension, a bunch of people who are acting and playing the faith because I know those of you that that are here in the room and that are consistent watching online, you're here because you want to be here. John MacArthur's church, which has been a great example to watch over the last several months, over 7,000 attendees every single week in his church. Do you know how many COVID cases he's had? Four. Huh. But due to COVID, only 20% of people will celebrate Super Bowl. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not real. I'm not saying that that there isn't a disease out there and that it can kill people. I I have known friends who have lost friends at this point. I know it is. 
But that doesn't mean we shut down our lives in worshiping Jesus because we're so afraid of someone passing away. Whether it's us or somebody else, because we don't hold on to this life. We're living for something greater. The church, it's now really clear. We're no longer drinking the, the, the Kool-Aid of fear. But we're diving into the Word of God. Uh, there, let, me, let me just be really clear here. There is no better time for a Christian to be alive. Are you excited about it? We're on the precipice of something. And I believe it's the sure foundation of faith, the building up of God's church, and the salvation of those who need it. Those who really want it. They don't want the, they don't want the fluffy Christianity where give me the smoke and give me the lights and give me the entertainment. Because what we're seeing right now, those churches are losing people. Those ch churches are losing finances because the church has never been about entertaining people or making you feel so good about yourself. The church is about the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. That's it. And if you come here, that's all you're going to get. You're going to get Jesus. You get more of Jesus. And you get more of Jesus. And if that's not for you, then I pray that God would save you, that that is all you would hunger after. Amen. Would you stand with me as we partake together and celebrate our communion and our relationship with Jesus Christ? Um, one thing I'll say, and maybe someone might be willing to uh, help us out with this, and I don't know because I'm up here and I'm not back there in the sound room, but it's become really, really clear um, that our... Our internet stability in our community is, is really weak. And so this morning at our 8.30 service, uh, the stream went down um, at our 8.30 service. There still are people that, that are vulnerable, that need to be at home, want to be home. We want to continue to reach them. And so having an, a good, solid internet connection um, is, is important. And there are people who, who want to be here, that they watch from here because they don't live in the area. And, and just so you know, there are a lot of people who watch us online uh, from all over the country because their churches are closed. So they just watch online because they would prefer to be with us, which is pretty incredible and, and a neat thing to be a part of. We do have an option to maybe fix it, and I don't know uh, how solid it is, but first of all, I would just ask you to pray um, because we want it to work every week. We want people... We don't like the whole pre-recorded thing. And the reason for that is because it, does, it just it doesn't feel... Um, doesn't feel, it doesn't feel real. <laughs> it doesn't feel live. There's something about people tuning in at the same time. And people do listen on demand and all that. There's an option for us to get a fiber optic line uh, into the church, but it would double our internet bill from 200 a month to like 500 a month, something like that. So number one, pray. Uh, number two, maybe someone online or one of you uh, would be interested in helping with that, uh, and we would be, be grateful uh, for your service in that regard. But uh, as much as I talk about how awesome it is we're here together, I care about people behind uh, the screen as well. And I know that some of them aren't ready to come. And a lot of them have a lot of different reasons for it. Some are legitimate, and some God is just working them through. 
and, and hopefully they'll be back with us soon when they're ready. But ultimately, as we close, we close with remembering the goodness of what I just mentioned, the faithful deposit of Jesus Christ. Uh, that first of all, as you open up uh, your little communion cup, and there sits this little round piece of bread for us that are in the room that represents the body of Christ. That Jesus took upon his own flesh our sin and our punishment. He suffered so that we could become saints. And this is an incredible gift to us. And Jesus, as he sat with his disciples, and as we sit with Jesus now at the communion table, we say, thank you, Lord, for sacrificing your body on our behalf, taking our punishment that we rightly deserve, and instead of punishing us, giving us your perfection. Lord, we thank you for that gift of salvation. You may partake. And then at that same table, Jesus took a cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. At the time, the disciples had no idea what he was talking about. Why is he saying there's blood in this cup? It wasn't until the cross and the shedding of Jesus' blood through not just the sacrifice, but also the beatings that he took. You see, in order for us to fight sin and to run to Jesus, we have to see the tremendous price that Jesus paid for our salvation. See, grace is free for you. Forgiveness of sins is free for you. But the Bible tells us that God himself took on flesh and he paid the price. Because the price that was needed to purchase us into the family of God was not a price that you and I could pay. Only God and God alone could pay such a price. And he literally purchased us, it says, out of the clutches of sin and darkness and death and into the gracious, merciful hands of God through his sinless, perfect blood. That through the shedding of his life force, we would be made born again for those of us who believe in faith. And so we thank God for laying down the most priceless thing he could himself. Lord, we thank you that you shed your perfect blood on our behalf. May that make us courageous and bold and filled with love and comfort. Lord, thank you that you're doing a work in our midst. And I pray, Lord, that you continue to do so in and through us, Lord. In Jesus' name, you may partake. Amen. Man, enjoy the rest of your day. You are a pleasure to be around. And I ask that God would bless your week, that you would walk in great faith. And all God's children said,